Thank you, Corey. This morning, before our sermon, there are a couple of things I want to share with you. Um, as many of you have probably heard, uh, Marilyn Nagy passed away uh, on Friday, I believe. Um, Marilyn had been battling a lot of different health issues over the years, uh, and the last week or so had been kind of a, a tumultuous one for her. And um, talking with Andy, you know, one of the things that he had expressed was that he just wanted her not to suffer anymore. And uh, we rest assured that what Jesus has promised is that she is in paradise, that she is at rest, and that she's not struggling at this point. Nevertheless, we miss Marilyn, and I know Andy misses Marilyn, and out of our love for them, I want to take some time this morning and pray, uh, pray for Andy, pray for their children, and pray for them as a family uh, as they wrestle with their grief. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have great hope in the resurrection. We have confidence in the promise that Jesus makes about uh, what happens to us when we, when we pass with faith in you. And Father, this morning our hearts, our hearts hurt because we know that uh, we are absent Marilyn at this point. We, we miss her. We mourn her loss. Father, our hearts hurt with Andy. We love him and we uh, we ache as he aches. And Father, we, we pray for him. We pray for their children. We pray, God, that you would uh, comfort them, that your spirit would surround them and provide them with peace. God, we pray that we might be a presence in their lives, that we might be your hands and feet to serve them and love them well as they mourn. And Father, we, we pray uh, just for the confidence, the, the same uh, hope for them to be filled with. Father, I pray that they would have great hope in the resurrection as we do. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to let you know that uh, you probably noticed as you came in the door today, we've changed things about communion this week. And for the next couple of weeks, uh, you're going to pick up your supplies in the auditorium, in, a, a little, or in the lobby, in a little bowl. Uh, there's a sign there. Take as many as you need for service today. Uh, what you will notice is that means you don't have a convenient little dispenser to put them into at the end of taking communion. Uh, and this poses a small risk. Uh, we all know that you're all very responsible people, uh, and you will take your garbage out of the auditorium at the end of service today. Uh, I would also encourage you, some of you are small sippers and uh, don't quite finish a whole gigantic communion cup. Uh, <laughs> I'd encourage you to, to drink the whole thing. And if you're on a low-carb diet, I can't tell you that the, the juice is low-carb, but it's probably not enough to mess with your you know, macros for the day. Um, that said, uh, at the end of service, if you could do us a favor and take the communion cups and the, the little, especially the little lids, out with you as you go. Uh, there are garbage cans out in the lobby, and we'd appreciate it if you did that. Um, it would, would also be very appreciated by the Rockwells, who don't want to necessarily have to dig through the chairs to find all the little uh, covers for the, the communion supplies. And so for my sake, for their sake, and for the sake of the congregation, uh, take it all with you when you go. Um, there are also going to be a couple of other things that over the next few weeks you're just going to notice some small changes, uh, choices we've made to respond to some feedback that we received at our Welcome Home Seminar last weekend. Um, the elders have reviewed all sorts of material that uh, Julia has done a great job of taking feedback and compiling it in a way that is very 
readable, very thoughtful, and we've decided to make just a couple of immediate low-hanging fruit choices about things that we can do to make it, first of all, clearer for our members what we're doing, but also for our visitors, our guests, those who are here with us for the first time so that they're not confused by some of the things that we sort of take for granted. And so if you see changes, know that most of them are in response to feedback from the congregation, actually. And so week one, uh, feedback response. We're changing the way we give out our communion supplies. Um, I don't have anything else to tell you. We're going to move right into our, our uh, sermon now. We've been looking at the parables of Jesus and this little phrase that he oftentimes begins his parables with. The kingdom of heaven is like. And we're most of the way through uh, Matthew chapter 13 and the parables that he tells there. And there are sometimes parables that have uh, similar themes but should be interpreted in different ways. We've talked about how the agricultural themes that Jesus uses, you can't always say that seed means the same thing. You can't always say that weeds mean the same thing. You can't even always say that you know, the, the farmer is the same person in every story. But what you can say is that Jesus is trying to draw on imagery that makes sense to his audience. Everybody at the time knew what it was like to watch a, har a farmer plant his field, harvest his field. Those were things that we, you know, would just assume they understood. But when he moves to the theme of treasure, I think he's appealing to the imagination. Not many people have walked through a field and stumbled on a, a treasure that they weren't expecting to find. It's, it's not that common. Not many people are pearl merchants that are going from stall to stall looking for a really valuable pearl that they're willing to sell everything for. But most of us have imagined great treasure. And as a child of the 80s and 90s, for me, the, the hallmark of movies about treasure was the Goonies, especially growing up in Oregon. You know, we all talked about how, like, the Goonies were in Astoria. You know, that's awesome. We're, maybe we'll go up there and we'll find the treasure in Astoria. There's no treasure in Astoria, by the way. I've looked. Not that Astoria is not a wonderful place. Astoria itself is a treasure. Um, <laughs> this is, for me, a hallmark of my childhood. And the idea of stumbling onto this great adventure and, and you know, finding a treasure that was far beyond anything you can imagine and being a little bit of a hero even as a child. And we've got Samwise Gamgee and his big brother uh, Thanos there, too, which is kind of exciting. A continuation from my childhood into my adulthood, these two actors. Of course, there's also Indiana Jones. And in the Indiana Jones movies, there's always a big treasure of some kind. You have, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant, you have the Holy Grail, you have whatever it was he was looking for in the Temple of Doom. I don't remember for sure. Someone's heart out of their chest. I, I've, I've watched it several times, but I can't recall what specifically he was looking for there. Was it the Spear of Destiny or something? I don't know. Um, I do remember, though, Indiana Jones movies were all about following the clues, finding the thing that was supposed to be uncovered, a great adventure around treasures that were beyond most people's imagination. And they always involved a map, or a, in the case of, you know, the greatest movie in the Indiana Jones series, the Grail Book, right? The father's handwritten notes about uh, how he was going to find the Holy Grail. 
A map was essential. Finding the treasure required a map. These weren't people who were accidentally stumbling onto something. These were people who had an intention and a purpose. Now, maybe the initial part of the adventure began as a surprise. The Goonies didn't know that they were going to go and find a treasure ship at the beginning of the movie. But once that became the goal, that was the whole goal. Sometimes, though, the treasures we find are unexpected. And as an adult, the movie that probably speaks most to me about what treasure is, is actually the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which I think I've referenced in sermons before, and eventually you're all going to tell me, okay, we get the point, we'll go watch the movie. But I want to share a clip with you this morning that I think speaks to the idea of unexpected treasure. And so uh, that'll be up here. Mind if we join you, old timer? Jive me, my son. Jive. You work for the railroad, Grandpa? I work for no man. Got a name, do you? I have no name. Well, that right there may be the reason you've had difficulty finding gainful employment. <laughs> you see, in the mart of competitive commerce... You seek a great fortune. You three who are nine change, you will find a fortune. Though it would not be the fortune you seek. But first, first you must travel a long and difficult road. A road fraught with peril. Mm -hmm. You shall see things wonderful to tell. You shall see a a cow on the roof of a cotton house. <laughs> and oh, so many starlings. I cannot tell you how long this road shall be, but fear not the obstacles in your path. For fate has vouchsafed your reward. Do the road may wind, yea, your hearts grow weary. Still shall ye follow the way, even unto your salvation. Oh, no, the treasure's still there, boys, believe me. But how'd he know about the treasure? He said, we wouldn't find it on account of our obstacles. That's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. And one of the reasons is it, it really speaks to this idea that they all, well, not all of them, George Clooney knows what they're looking for. But his two somewhat dim-witted friends are not entirely aware of the journey that they're on. And when the, the blind seer tells them, you will find a fortune, though it be not the one you seek. Even George Clooney's character doesn't really know what it is he's going to discover along the way. He finds, his, he finds his wife. He finds his daughters. Maybe he finds faith. There's this moment at the end of the movie where as he has a noose around his neck, and they're digging his grave off to the side, and they're getting ready to hang him, he 
he's down on his knees and he's praying, looking up at the sky, asking for God to intervene in this moment. And he does. Big flood comes through and they're all surviving it. They end up seeing the cow on top of the cotton house. And George Clooney's character, after this heartfelt plea to God, dismisses it all as coincidence. You know, it's just a, a happenstance. But the things that he was told would happen, happened. And sometimes when we've been told that there's a treasure for us to seek and the treasure is staring us right in the face, we don't even recognize it when it's right there. Though the road may be long, still shall you follow it, even unto your salvation. I think one of the themes of the movie, whether or not the Coen brothers knew it at the time, is that the treasure that he had the opportunity to grasp was his salvation. Not just a salvation from having a noose hung around his neck and being hung from a tree, but salvation for his soul. There in the moment of weakness, doubt, fear, whatever else was going on in his very loquacious head, there was an opportunity for salvation. And it was not the treasure he'd been seeking wasn't the treasure his friends had been seeking, certainly, but it wasn't the treasure that he'd been seeking either. And we have these two parables about people who discover something that maybe they were seeking, but maybe they weren't. And it begins, and I want to remind you here, sometimes we read these parables and we forget what the kingdom of heaven is being compared to, and we want to insert ourselves into that spot. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There's something interesting about this particular parable. Uh, I've heard two different takes on this, that the treasure that's found in the field is the people, that Jesus is the man who has stumbled upon the treasure, and as a result, he has given everything he has to claim the treasure, well, to buy the field and claim the treasure. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I'm going to suggest that the parable of the pearl means exactly that. But in this case, the field is the hidden treasure, or the, the kingdom is the hidden treasure in the field. The kingdom is the hidden treasure in the field. Now, when we talk about a kingdom, we're talking about a people. We're talking about maybe a place. We're talking about individuals who have a shared sovereign, right? We've discussed this before, the idea that the kingdom is comprised of people. And here, in this particular parable, we're being told that the kingdom is like treasure hidden in a field. I want to be clear. Jesus has always possessed the kingdom. There's no doubt about it. God's people have always been God's people. So who is it that's doing the possessing in this? We'll come back to that in just a moment. There's this idea that associated with the kingdom of heaven is such great value that it's worth everything this man possesses. He's buying the field, but what he really wants is the treasure he's found in it. 
He covers it up. He's going to come back to it as soon as he's been able to dispose him or uh, uh, divest himself of all his other accumulations. I think it's important for us to ask some questions about this. Who is the man? What is the treasure? What is sold? What is acquired? Jesus poses these stories for us, us to consider so that those who have ears might hear. The second parable, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Kingdom of heaven is now like a merchant. Now the pearl is not the kingdom of heaven, but the man, the merchant, is the kingdom of heaven. I don't think Jesus is, is being ambiguous here. I think he's carefully choosing his words, and he wants us to see the kingdom of heaven from two different perspectives. We could say very well that the king makes the kingdom. I think in this case, the merchant that we're looking at is God. I think that the, the individual that we're uh, approaching here is the one who defines what the kingdom is. Who is the merchant? I'd say the merchant is God. What is the pearl? Well, the pearl is the thing that he's desired to acquire enough that he would sell everything else in order to acquire it. What is sold? Everything else. What is acquired? The pearl, right? It's a pretty simple story, and we can read it, and we can see that what Jesus is saying here is that there's two different perspectives on the kingdom of heaven. There are those who do not already possess the kingdom, those who are not the kingdom themselves, that must be willing to give up everything to possess the kingdom. That's the first parable. A man finds a treasure in a field that is so valuable that he's willing to give up everything to acquire it. In the second parable, the, the kingdom is not the pearl. The pearl is something that the kingdom desires to acquire. So I'm going to tell you this. In the first parable, I think that we're being told that the kingdom of heaven is something that we have the opportunity to stumble on. We are not intentionally looking for it most times in our lives. Now, at some point, there might be something that provokes the beginning of that search. We're people without a map. We've stumbled onto this great treasure and we have to ask how we're going to respond to it. The kingdom of heaven, for those of us who find it unexpectedly, is a great treasure that we should be willing to give up everything for. That's the first parable. The second parable is this. The kingdom of heaven, and in this case the merchant representing God, says that there is something that is so valuable out there that everything else is worth laying aside to acquire it. And the merchant sells all that he has to acquire the pearl. This is Jesus, who possessing everything says, there is something I desire more than anything else. 
something I want so deeply, something that, that should be mine but is not, I am willing to trade everything to reclaim, acquire, possess it. I think Jesus is telling us this. You are desired so deeply. You are so valuable to God. You are of such great worth that he would give anything and has given everything to possess you. Now, possessiveness can be a a negative quality sometimes, but in this case, this is a desire for relationship. This is a desire to be able to claim you and perhaps save you from some worse fate. See, if, if most pearl merchants were to work the way that this merchant does, they would never make any money because how are you going to trade this next biggest pearl that's worth everything you've ever found? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to possibly find a buyer for a pearl of such great worth? This is not this merchant saying, I'm looking for something bigger and better, and as soon as I'm done with this one, I'm moving on from it. Once I find the next big find, this one gets dropped. This is the end game for this merchant. This is what I've been searching for my entire life. And it is worth everything. If you read scripture, one of the things that you begin to see is that the entirety of history is the story of God attempting to bring his people to him, to possess them, to have relationship with them for eternity. And every step that he makes is him giving a little bit more of himself in the attempt to acquire the thing which he desires the most, which is relationship with his people. But most of the story has also been told in such a way to tell us that the people haven't often been willing to give everything they have for the same relationship. If you look at the story of Israel, almost immediately in building a relationship with God, there are things that they're ready to withhold from him. There are barters they're willing to make with themselves about what the kingdom is actually worth. You know, we, we understand the deal that you're giving to us. You're going to give us a land. You're going to allow our children to inherit that land for eternity. You will make us a special and prized possession. That's actually the language that God uses of the Israelite people. You are my prized possession. We get that that's what you want from us. And we're willing to give a little bit in order to be able to receive that status. But you know what? We also kind of want a few other things here. Occasionally, we'd like to be able to go worship some Asherah poles. Occasionally, we would like to be able to, you know, elect ourselves a king and pretend like you don't exist and it's man that gets to set the rules. We'd like to do that every once in a while. And God is constantly saying, look, I would give anything for relationship with you. All I'm asking is for the same in return. And when Jesus tells these two parables, he begins by putting the onus on us. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field you weren't even expecting to find. And when you've stumbled on it, you should be willing to give everything for it. There is nothing you currently have that is more valuable than that treasure. But you know, God, what I'd really like is the treasure 
and my weekends too. I'd really like the treasure, and I'd also like to be able to drive a really fancy car. Uh, can I have the kingdom of heaven and all the material wealth of this world? And Jesus says it doesn't really work that way. I'm not saying you won't have material wealth of some kind, but that can't be the thing that you're pursuing. In fact, if I'm asking you to give it up in order to possess the kingdom, you should be willing to give it up. God, what I really want is the kingdom of heaven and absolute liberty in all of my sexual escapades. God, what I really want is the kingdom of heaven and the ability to explore recreational drug use for all of eternity. God, what I really want is the kingdom of heaven and the ability to gamble my life savings away in a way that harms my family. God, what I really want is the kingdom of heaven and the ability to just be dishonest with the people in my life on a regular and continual basis. See, I put it that way, and we all think it sounds ridiculous, but aren't these the barters we tend to make with God in our day-to-day -day lives? God, I want the kingdom of heaven, but I don't really want relationships with my neighbors. I don't want to love the people who are difficult to love. Can I have the kingdom of heaven, but not give up my personal comfort in the relationships I choose to possess? And Jesus begins by comparing the possession of the kingdom of heaven, or citizenship thereof, to a willingness to give up everything. It's not a both and. It is an either or. And this is very difficult theology because we really like all the other things. Jesus tells us this treasure that you have discovered should be worth giving up everything. And if you don't understand why, let me tell you the story about the merchant who had everything. Because let me be completely clear, for whatever reason throughout history, these little balls of like oyster goo that hardens and solidifies over a piece of sand, they have been tremendously valuable from the very beginning, not for any particularly wonderful qualities that they possess other than their shiny things, but because people like shiny things. That's it. You can dissolve a pearl in vinegar. I mean, like at least diamond has the quality of being kind of tough and you can chisel things with it, but a pearl is basically just mucus that's hardened over time. And they're extraordinarily valuable. And this merchant, for all of history, would have been like a really highly regarded person in his community because he possessed a lot of hardened oyster mucus. It sounds kind of ridiculous, right? <laughs> And now I'm thinking, I'm comparing the church to hardened oyster mucus. It was Jesus' uh, analogy, not mine. Take it up with him. Um, I want to be really clear here. The merchant who gives up whatever else he has is giving up great worth. For the person who is listening to this parable in Jesus' time, in the first century, a merchant who has the ability to buy a pearl of great value is top rung of the ladder as far as merchants are concerned. There is no one above him 
in net value except maybe the emperor himself. He says, look, the merchant found a pearl that was so valuable to him. The kingdom discovered something that was so valuable that every other possession, every other maybe notable title that you might carry around, even your own home was worth giving up. And now stop and think about this. What did Jesus give up in order to walk among us, in order to live, to die, and to be raised again, in order to be enthroned in heaven on high? Jesus gave up heaven on high. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He gave up in many ways by being a human being equality with God. doesn't mean he stops being God, but all the rights and privileges thereof as a tiny baby born in a feeding trough, he gave up so much to possess you to possess your brothers and sisters in Christ, to possess those who have not yet come to Christ. And I want to ask you this morning, what are we willing to give up because so much has been given for us? This is my challenge to us this morning, to read these two parables through the eyes of Jesus, to read them with the understanding of what those people sitting in the audience that morning might have heard. And I want you to understand that Jesus is calling us to two things, to recognize the great price that has been paid for the reclamation of the people who are the kingdom of heaven and what God expects of those who are the kingdom of heaven to be willing to give up to remain there. This is all feeding back into this idea of sovereignty of citizenship, of civil responsibility. What is expected of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? A whole lot. The willingness to give up everything. Now Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but that's not telling us that there's not a lot expected of us. It's saying it's really simple. You want to know what my expectations for citizens of the kingdom of heaven are. Love your neighbor Love God. And in order to do that, you're going to have to give up a whole lot. And if we genuinely believe that the merchant who has sold all to claim us is our king, is our sovereign, that's what we have to be willing to do. It's what it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to take on his image, to give as he gave. This morning, I want to pray as we continue our worship that we would reflect on this idea of what we hold back from God in the bargain. We are tremendously fortunate to have stumbled on a treasure that we weren't expecting even to the salvation of our souls. Can we give in return for that? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray this morning that we would give up, sell, dispossess ourselves of all the things that we would like to have in addition to the kingdom. That we would drop 
the treasures of this world, that we would lay down the things that are oftentimes distractions or barriers to being part of the kingdom. And Father, I pray this morning that you would work on our hearts individually, that you would help us to see those things which we have said, yes, I want to be a part of the kingdom, but I also want this too. And that this morning we would commit ourselves to saying, I just want to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. I want to give everything else up in pursuit of that. Father, I pray this morning for those who are hurting, who are struggling, who are suffering. God, oftentimes we hurt and struggle and suffer because there are things that we just can't give up. And we also hurt sometimes because of other things, but God, oftentimes the pain that we find in our lives is because we just aren't willing to let go to receive the better thing that you intend for us. So I pray this morning that those who are sitting here who haven't given up the things that are causing them hurt, would do so today to receive the better gift that you intend for them. We thank you for giving everything to reclaim us. And I pray, Father, that we would return in kind. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand and sing as we uh, sing together.